Grace and peace be with you this Lord's Day. As we turn our attention to Psalm 69, you can tell that there's much emotion and much depth of meaning in the psalm. Already in my conversations with some of you this morning, you have spoken about how you are up to your neck in a variety of situations, a variety of circumstances. And so you're in good company because your pastors are too. The people sitting around you feel the same way. And everywhere we look in the world, many people say they are up to their neck in one way or another. I have a friend who, for a variety of circumstances, finds himself enrolled in three different seminaries as he's working on becoming a minister. And I called him up a couple of weeks ago and asked how he was doing, and he said, I'm up to my neck in patristics as he explores ancient church history. His wife is a physician that works in the VA hospital. I check on her and ask, how are you doing? I'm up to my neck. I'm up to my neck in COVID patients. I'm up to my neck in body bags and people leaving this hospital who've lost their lives. Recently, my wife said to me, she's up to her neck in sick children and charting and talked about how the spreadsheets get longer and longer. Our daughter texted this morning to say she might not make it to lunch today because she's up to her neck in schoolwork and grading papers and trying to get on top of all that comes along with being a teacher. And on and on we could go as we look at your life and consider your situation and the places that you walk, whether you're in a medical profession, whether you're a homemaker, whether you are working and commuting, you're up to your neck in one way or another, either taking care of kids or trying to stay on top of your bills to make sure that the car keeps running, whatever it is. But oftentimes, as we talk about being up to our neck, we are looking at the circumstances of life, and we don't take the time to go a little deeper and to explore what's happening in our hearts and in our souls. I can tell you as a pastor that it's the rare person who ever comes to say, I'm up to my neck in sin. I can't take it anymore. I'm up to my neck in this habit or this addiction that I can't break. I need help. But there are people who come, and we try our best to pray with them, give counsel and help. We're up to our neck in so many different ways, and when we read this psalm, we find that the psalmist is also up to his neck, for the waters have come up to the edges of his life. This past week, as I was considering the phrase up to, the, up to my neck and all the different ways that I've heard it, I actually came across something that surprised me, something I'd never seen before, and that is the old rock and roll band ACDC actually has a song called Up to My Neck. And while you wouldn't expect it coming from them, it's actually more profound than you might expect if you were to listen to it. And these are some of the lyrics. See if you can relate. I've been up to my neck in trouble. Up to my neck in strife, up to my neck in misery, up to my neck in pain. I've been up to my neck in wishing that this neck wasn't mine. Most of us could wish that and probably have wished it more than once. But the gospel tells us something beautiful. And the good news is that Jesus Christ has fulfilled that wish by stretching out his neck for us and by giving up his spirit on our behalf at the cross. And that is the sermon in a nutshell. 
but I'm obviously going to give you more than a nutshell. Let's go into this psalm and explore a little bit more of what it says about the gospel of Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with you my sort of three-step, three-layered approach to reading the gospel or reading the psalms. And the first layer has to do with what does this psalm say about the canonical context? What does it say about David? What does it say about the circumstances surrounding the psalm? The second layer is the connective link where we ask, what does this psalm have to do with my life? How can I relate to the psalmist? Does it say anything to me about me? How can I connect? How are we uh, compatible? And then the third layer is the most important layer of all, and that is, what does this psalm have to say about Christ? What does this psalm tell us about Jesus, about the gospel? What does this psalm show us about the Lord Jesus Christ? I was surprised in researching this psalm to find that this psalm is used six or seven times in the New Testament by the apostles as they lift out little phrases here and there. And there's no way we could explore all of that in one sermon, maybe in a series of sermons we could, but in one sermon, I'm just going to look at the first nine verses. But I want you to see that this psalm tells us so much about the Lord Jesus. And as we make our way through it, I want to do what we did a few weeks ago and put this psalm in the mouth of Jesus. A couple of weeks ago when we did this exercise, we looked at Jesus in Gethsemane and how he prayed Psalm 77. But today I want us to take this psalm and go to a different moment in Jesus' life. I want us to go all the way to the place of the skull, all the way to the crucifixion of Jesus. And I want us to hear Jesus praying this psalm from the cross. And as we do that, you can rest assured that the psalm is going to take on a new shape and a new meaning. It's going to impact you in a different way than if you were just thinking about what it said about David or about you. This is a psalm that we can imagine Jesus praying from the cross. So imagine with me, if you will, that scene, that scene outside the city of Jerusalem where there is a mount, and upon that mount, three crosses are planted, two thieves and an innocent man in the middle. The mount is surrounded by all kinds of people, high and low, politicians and soldiers and religious leaders. It's surrounded by ordinary folks. Enemies of Jesus are very close, keeping an eye on him. The friends and family of Jesus are far away, keeping their distance, with the exception of a couple of folks. There's John, Jesus' buddy, who's always been by his side, the disciple Jesus loves, standing at the foot of the cross. And standing beside John is the blessed mother of Jesus, Mary. Mary has the distinct identity as being the only person in the history of the world to have been present when Jesus came into the world and to have been present when Jesus left the world. And there she is standing at the feet of the cross, standing at the feet of her son, looking up upon him and seeing his bruised and battered body. She feels the agony, not only of having welcomed him into the world at his birth, but the agony now of having to bid farewell to her son at the cross. Before her waking eyes hangs her son, beaten and bruised, 
nailed to a cross, lifted up, suspended between heaven and earth, his hands and his feet bearing the full weight of his body as he clings to that cross. Sweat and blood are pouring from his flesh, and the prayers are flowing from his spirit. It's not hard to imagine Jesus praying in this moment and praying something like Psalm 69, if not this psalm. Imagine him from the cross saying, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. I'm weary with crying out. My throat is dry. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. It's for your sake that I bear this reproach. I've become an alien to my brothers, a stranger to my mother's sons. It's in this poetic language that we get a picture of the cross that perhaps we haven't considered before. A more descriptive, graphic image of the agonies of the crucifixion and the heart of Jesus. In poetic and prophetic language, the waters are not the waters of a river or the waters of a sea. That's not what the psalmist is saying. That's not what Jesus would have been crying out from the cross. The waters are exceedingly worse than that. The waters in this prayer are the waters of the nations that have come up against him, of all the peoples, the enemies without number and without cause that have encircled him. The waters are also representative of the waters of judgment. Think of the waters that destroyed the world in the days of Noah that burst from the deep and came up to judge the world because of violence and bloodshed. Think of the waters that were roiling and boiling in the sea when the prophet Jonah was running away from God and was then cast into the sea as a sacrifice to calm those waters. The waters of chaos and the waters of destruction are the waters that rise up from below. These are the waters that are rising up around Jesus, rising up to his neck. The deep waters are bringing curses upon him. On the cross, Jesus is up to his neck in the waters of divine judgment. The scripture says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so again, the prophets and the psalmist give us a poetic description of the crucifixion. And we can know this because of things Jesus said in his own life in ministry. There's a story found in the gospel of Mark chapter 10, where two of Jesus's close friends come to him to make a wish, to make a request of him. And I can't help but read this story uh, the way you might see the story of Aladdin and the genie. They come with that kind of attitude, like we found a lamp and we've rubbed the lamp and now the genie has popped out and we're making a wish. And so they say to Jesus, we have one request, not three, not one, uh, not three wishes, but one wish. And our wish is that you will let one of us sit at your right hand and let the other one sit at your left hand when you come into your glory. Very humble, simple request. We're not asking a lot, Jesus. Just make us 
Number two and number three, in your glory. And this is where you get the image of the first Jesus facepalm. <laughs> Guys, you don't even know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? You think you can be baptized with the baptism with which I'm going to be baptized? And like silly boys, they say, totally, we can do that. Whatever it takes to be number two and number three, that's what we want to do. They still don't know what they're saying. And Jesus looks at them and says, you will drink the cup that I'm going to drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. What did Jesus mean by that when he said that? Did he mean you're going to have to go back to the Jordan River and get baptized at the same place I was? No. What Jesus meant is that you are going to share in my sufferings and my death you're going to participate in my sacrifice. And then you will have a little taste of the glory. They still don't understand what Jesus is saying. But he's telling them the truth because he wants them to know that the deep water is coming. The judgment will rise. And it will rise for their sake against him. So it's at the cross that the deep waters that swept over Jesus were not the physical waters of rivers and seas, but the metaphysical waters of the judgment of God for the destruction of sin and death and for the salvation of the world. And so as the judgment waters rise up around Jesus, come up to his neck, he feels the hand of death tightening its grip, drawing closer to him, squeezing the life out of him. It's in this moment that he feels exhausted and weary. And we learn not only from Psalm 69, but also from the gospel writers that Jesus cries out things like, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. And imagine that. Waters, water everywhere, yet not a drop. To drink. He's aware that his battered face is despicable and covered in shame before God and man. He feels like an exile in his own family. He doesn't fit in any longer. His brothers act like they don't even know him. His mother loves him and is standing near the foot of the cross, but not her other children. The whole world is against him. His enemies have multiplied and abounded. They are more numerous than the hairs on his head. And as he looks out, he sees that practically everyone has moved against him and mocks him and makes fun of him. But worst of all, it's the super religious people that are doing this. The people that should have known better were the people that acted the worst. They scoff at him with smug and sarcastic words. You've heard them before, but hear them now again. As they look upon Jesus, crucified and helpless, unable to defend himself, 
even unwilling to do so. And they heap abuse upon him when they say, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you come down from the cross, then we will believe in you. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll trust him. He trusts in God. Let God deal with him. Let God deliver him now if God even wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. With every insult, with every barb, with every jab, the waters of condemnation rise higher and higher. And Jesus sinks deeper and deeper into the muck and mire of your sin and mine. He feels the destructive force of divine judgment upon himself. And it's in the midst of that storm, in the midst of that flood, that he cries out, Save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck. It's interesting that our translators say, come up to my neck. They're trying to capture an idiomatic expression. The Hebrew word in this psalm is not neck so much as it is soul, life. The waters have come up to the edge of my life. They've come up to my soul. Why would the psalmist say that? It's because in the beginning when God made man, scooped him together with his own hands, forming him from the dust of the ground, shaping him into the image and likeness of God, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and that dirt clod became a living soul. And when God became flesh and came into the world, he came into the world as a life-giving spirit. And now at the cross, Jesus, this life-giving spirit in the flesh, is at the risk of dying, of losing his life, of giving up his spirit. Why? Because the waters of judgment, the waters of judgment that had begun rising from the day Adam sinned until now, are rising up to his neck. And the more they rise... The deeper the waters get, the more shallow and stilted his breath becomes. If anyone in the world could have ever said, I can't breathe, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Typically, when we think of the crucifixion, we think of things like the physical pain of Jesus. We think of the nail-pierced hands and feet. We think of the scourging and the shredding of his skin on his back, the loss of blood and sweat. We think of the crown of thorns. Sometimes we move a little bit deeper than that, and we think about the emotional trauma he must have felt as he found himself isolated, suspended between heaven and earth. Father, why have you forsaken me? 
My brothers have abandoned me. Where are my friends? The whole world has become my enemy. But things were happening inside of Jesus as well. A few years ago, several medical, uh, medical doctors did studies of crucifixion. They wanted to know from a medical side what happened in a crucifixion. And one of the things that they discovered, and you could read this from uh, studies done at the Mayo Clinic, and you could read about this in the journal for um, the American Medical Association. These are all published studies performed by physicians. But one of the surprising things about these studies is when they talk about what ultimately or typically killed a victim and ended the life of someone who was crucified, it was not the loss of blood, although that was a contributing factor. It was the loss of breath. Because when a person was crucified and they were suspended in the vertical state, their chest would lock down. And it would lock down as if they had inhaled air, but they were unable to exhale the air as they hung on the cross. And the only way they could exhale was to press upon the nail-pierced feet and pull upon their nail-pierced hands to raise themselves up so that they could exhale. And then in order to inhale again, they would have to lower themselves back down feeling all of that excruciating pain in their hands and their feet, not to mention that their back would be rubbing against the beam of the cross with the searing agony of the wood grinding into the back. And as they pulled and lowered and raised themselves and went back down trying to breathe out and breathe in, breathe out and breathe in. The body, through the loss of fluids, through the loss of blood, through the expenditure of energy, would become utterly exhausted so that the man hanging on the cross would be perceived by all around as a wretched man, ruined and wrecked by crucifixion. And not only were these things happening to the body inside and out, but in the middle of all of this, fluids would flood the heart and fill the lungs, pushing the breath of life out of the crucified victim. And so the work of merely breathing in and out became the exhausting work of survival Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to the edges of my life. And as those fluids fill the heart and lungs of Jesus, it seems that it was literally true that these waters engulfed him, that these waters pushed the air out of his life. The breath of life was displaced and driven out to the point that Jesus finally cries out, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last and he gives up his spirit. In these medical reports, they say 
to put a fine point on it. That most victims of crucifixion died of asphyxiation. The breath of life that was breathed into man at the beginning was then given back to God at the end. So why did Jesus do all of these things? Why did Jesus give himself to scorn and sorrow and shame, even suffocation? Why would he endure this? And the answer is found in Psalm 69, verse 9, in other places as well. But here we hear clearly the reason. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. To put that in other words, we would say Jesus was so passionate for God's people that he took all of our problems on his back and he bore our punishment in his body. That's why he endured these things. That Jesus was destroyed in the waters of divine judgment so that you would be delivered from those dreadful waters. That Jesus was cast into the stormy waters of destruction so that he could lead you beside the still waters of salvation. In other words, Jesus endured the storm of the cross so that you don't have to. He weathered the storm so that you could rest in his peace. Now, how do we know this? And how and when have we ever experienced this? Well, I remind you of the sacrament of baptism. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we will surely be united with Christ in a resurrection like his. He leads you beside still waters. And your baptism is a reminder of his promise to do that. It is the sign and seal of your union with him. That the death he died, he died for you. That the life he lived, he lives for you. And you are united with him so that the judgment of God will never fall upon you because it was absorbed by him. He took the blows. He endured the shock so that you don't have to. So life is crazy and hard, right, for all of us. Some weeks worse than others, some days better than others. What does this psalm have to do with us? Well, I want you to know that before Jesus gave up his spirit, he prayed for you. You know he prayed for you because on the cross he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And you might say, well, that was what he prayed for someone else. He didn't necessarily pray that for me. Okay. But the psalmist tells us that he did pray something else for you. And don't try to exclude yourself from this prayer because Jesus not only prayed for you while he was on the cross, he prays for you now, seated at the right hand of God. In fact, the scripture says he ever lives to intercede for us. And just imagine... 
as everything is coming up to your neck and life feels like a total train wreck and you feel fear rising, just imagine Jesus praying for you in this room, in the next room, praying these things for you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. What does that mean? It means that when Jesus prays for you, Jesus' heart's desire for you is that you may be saved. This is his ongoing, continual prayer for you, is that you may be saved. And how can you know you've been saved? Well, the Apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? For with the heart one believes and is declared forgiven and innocent by God, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And the promise built into all of this is that no one who believes in him will ever be put to shame. Why? For the Lord Jesus Christ bestows the riches of his grace on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I know you've got a lot of stuff rising up to your neck and you feel like you've had it up to here with this, that, and the other. But I want to encourage you to turn your attention to Christ, to cry out to him in your prayers, to acknowledge your need, to believe in your Savior, to confess his name, to devote your heart to him, to enter into his rest, and to feast upon his grace. And I'll tell you, it's not as hard and difficult as, it, as you imagine. It all simply begins with one heartfelt prayer. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us pray.